The Dog's Guide to Surfing. Of course. Of course. Dog Surfing Olympics. <laughs> and then it even extends to surfing ducks. And then there's, I mean, there's surfing turtles. It goes on and on and on. Is there something about the way that it's described in those books that you think resonates more so than some of the other more spiritually minded authors? They're not self-important. They kind of get it. That one of the things with surfing is, I think, the impossibility of rendering it or taking it too seriously. Welcome to the Wild West podcast. That voice you just heard belongs to Mark Renniker, who's an absolute fixture of San Francisco surfing. He was at home at Ocean Beach browsing his collection of surf literature, which is massive. There's this room in his house he calls the Surfing Library. One wall is literally floor to ceiling with books of all kinds on surfing, memoirs, histories, novels, even picture books. I mean, you name it. Another wall is a floor-to-ceiling catalog of old surfing magazines. So I went to meet him there, and he gave me a quick tour, flipping open these old, dusty volumes from Jack London and Mark Twain that contain early accounts of Hawaiian surf culture. But it's these whimsical descriptions of, like, yellow labs cruising longboards that hew most closely to the freewheeling spirit of surfing, Renneker says. Even though he owns thousands of books, Renneker says he has a pleasurable contempt for most of the books in his surfing library. Renneker, who goes by the nickname Doc, is one of the first to ever surf Mavericks, which is the famous big wave reef break near Half Moon Bay. He's also a family physician, and he works as a patient advocate, so people with terminal illnesses call him up when they're not sure who to turn to, and he takes their cases and tries to help them figure out how to get the care they need. It's pretty high-stakes work. I, from the beginning, saw that work as being essentially the big wave equivalent of, of medicine. Hmm. Really, really having to be in sort of peak shape, really be on your toes, and entering into sometimes pretty hairy, critical situations. I met Doc at home and recorded this podcast in the surfing library. He's as erudite a surfing historian as there is, and he's not afraid to share his opinions. So he's a really fun guy to talk to. We cover why he thinks surfing's inclusion in the 2020 Olympics is a terrible idea, how the mainstream killed Mavericks, and why Big Wednesday is the only good surfing movie ever made. I really hope you guys enjoy it. We'll get back to my conversation with Doc in just a moment, but first, this brief message. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, we're back. Let's jump back into my conversation with big wave surfer, Doc Renneker. I mean, what's going on now with books on surfing is that all of these greats from the 50s and 60s, they're either writing their own memoirs or someone realizes that they're disappearing, <laughs> dying off. And so they get in there and sort of do a book by so-and-so with so-and-so who, who mm. put it together. Yeah, yeah. And what's, 
what's been happening is the whole back 40 of the backyard of surfing is being covered pretty well now. So what they try to do, they try to stand out in some way, which means they tend to overstate their own importance. Hmm. You know, these, these surfing memoirs, um, as I said, they tend to be a bit ego-driven, I think, and they tend to be, shall we say, fanciful. And it's also a risky proposition to take on what I still see as the impossibility of writing about surfing. Yeah, what is the impossibility? I just, I, I think it's something experienced and really, really difficult to write about, to try to get at what it is that draws us all so completely for so many years. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, really, it's, uh, there aren't a whole lot of parallels even. It's more of a lifestyle compared to a sport from the usual perspective of what sport is. The canon of surfing literature, uh, I still find that the best uh, representations of surfing have been in the fictional accounts rather than the nonfiction. So what are your least favorite surf cliches that you find in these memoirs, autobiographies, histories? All of them. <laughs> and again, I mean, you, you know, you, you're, talk, you're tapping the source here, which is the problem with books on surfing, the publisher and the editor's starting point is cliche. They see surfing in so many cliches. The language, you know, the whole subculture of it, you know, they want to see that. And, you know, the semi sort of stoner, madman on the loose kind of thing. So unfortunately, I think some people sort of cater to the editor's perceived interest. And the sure tip-off will be when the publisher says, the book's got to be done for summer release. Hmm. Once you hear the summer release, you know that they're coming from the basic Gidget perspective. Was there anything, any reason that we should feel optimistic, maybe, uh, uh, based on the fact that that book, Barbarian Days, won the Pulitzer? No. No. <laughs> no. No. I, I mean, really. I mean, that kind of sustained attention from kind of the mainstream on this you know, thick book about surfing. You know what it is? It's still, it's always about provenance and pedigree. And the pedigree is, if you, as it were, come out of sort of East Coast literata, the New Yorker, okay, well then, then you're, you're in the running for Pulitzer, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I wrote a piece about Bill in the early 90s for Surfer Magazine. You know, basically in terms of Bill's aspirations, I said, Perhaps a Pulitzer. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Called it back in the oh, 90s. Way back then. Bill got mad at me for that. Oh, really? Uh-huh. That's funny. So, what can, what can one say? Well, I wanted to ask you, since you brought up Point Break, yeah. one of the fun things about surf movies i found is that uh, no movie seems to be able to do surfing justice. Like, when, what was the last good surf movie you watched that was not a documentary? Well, you know, you're right about that. Uh, you know, the one that still sort of plays well, if you see it again, is Big Wednesday. Big Wednesday. Because Big Wednesday had an interesting structure where they sort of used the four seasons of surfing. They sort of got it in a sort of a poetic way, I thought, even though they still had all the silly stories and it still came down to the big day. 
a lot of the films tend to be about big wave surfing. That's the draw. Yeah, it still comes down to it. That book I showed you, Kalia, the Surf Rider, from 1901, that's, the, that's basically the plot. You know, it's all leading up to sort of this big day of surf and this one guy proving himself. Mm. And, and he gets the girl. So um, it's still there. And again, it's the cliches and the expectations of the public. I don't think as much among surfers. I think we see it, again, even the whole idea of, of a competition or a big wave competition. We still see it, I think, as, as somewhat phony. But aren't you drawn to... You're drawn to big wave surfing. No, I love big wave surfing. But so, so don't you understand where these cliches are coming from? Don't you subscribe to these cliches on some level? No, I I've been sickened by the, the appropriation of big wave surfing by the jet skiers and by the transient powers to be in the surf industry in whether it be the Eddy or whether it be the the Mavericks contests that they have seemed to me increasingly irrelevant the idea of sort of who's the winner in the big waves and on any given day a bunch of guys who are all friends anyway all go out all of us know who was on that day and, and who got the wave of the day pretty much everybody knows any day you go surfing so then the idea that somehow you're going to turn over that anointment of based on some judges and these the judging criteria have always been lame, just lame <laughs> yeah. for all contests. Yeah, and so it makes no sense. And uh, most of the people who would ever show up at the beach to watch the contest, they're not surfers. They're just look or lose. You know, they're just there. Yeah, there's something going on. You know, hey, wow, this is exciting. I mean, really, the the nail in the coffin has to be this idea of sort of the Kelly Slater Surf Ranch, where now. Well, I guess you could put up, you know, grandstands and have people sit and watch, but eh, don't even. Let's not bother. It's gonna happen. The Olympics. Well, it's it's already happening, and then the idea that it would be in the Olympics. I mean, talk about pathetic. Not a fan. Oh God, no. <laughs> no, because I remember back when when I found at the Surfers Medical Association in the late '80s, surfing had sort of a a body of you know card carrying physicians who. Uh, sort of represented the sport and I remember meeting with at the time world champ like Tommy Curran who said he said I oh, know you, you don't understand you guys are way more important to the sport than we are the pro surfers uh, because uh, you know what you have to say people will listen to so sure enough before you knew it the reef guys wanted us to pledge to sponsor the uh, application to the Olympics. And well, what did that involve? Well, what it involved was drug testing. <laughs> and we just laughed at them. We said, we're not going to get involved with drug testing surfers. <laughs> right. You got to be kidding. Right. It's ridiculous. And, the, and so, and that's sort of this, the, and then this idea of sort of frog marching these poor surfers in, you know, to this essentially largely fascist organization of the Olympics committees, no way. So obviously now as things have become, and you know, now everybody surfs. And yeah. I think the, the, uh, the ethics or the cultural uh, nuances are 
are radically different now in 2019 than they were even in, say, 1999. How would you account for that? I think it was the, the mainstreaming of surfing. So it was the, the contests, the, internet, media? Uh, no, I think it was the beachwear industry. Oh, yeah, okay. That basically everybody wanted to kind of be a surfer. The same thing happened in the late 50s, early 60s with the whole Gidget thing. And you had people driving around in Kansas with surfboards on their roof just because it looked cool. And they didn't know what a ho daddy was, but there they were. Now, you know, if you're in tech and all your friends have gone to a surf school and you feel like you need to go too, and uh, and now you all hang together and join a, a little country club even, where, <coughs> where after you surf, you can, you know, have a hot cup of tea and get a hot shower and all that. It's like, huh? But that's where it is. So when you are out wherever, Ocean Beach, let's say, and you see somebody walking around with a wave storm, what goes through your head? It used to be abject puzzlement. And then I tried one of those boards. You had fun, didn't you? Well, it was, it was you know, everything in surfing, it's, if you try to ride a new wave craft, it's always a challenge. Uh-huh. And again, did that make a difference to your point to have a $99 surfboard? that they give it a lifetime replacement if, if it falls apart. I think that had a huge difference, it made a big difference. And also the other thing that made the big difference was when it became cool again to ride longboards and you didn't have to try to ride these potato chips that the pros were riding, which were so discouraging and nine tenths of people couldn't for the life of them stand up on one of those while they learned to surf. Now you could get a soft top longboard and pretty much be guaranteed to stand up your first time trying. Mm-hmm. That made a big difference. Yeah. What's the longest period that you've gone without surfing? For a period of time, in 1971, went to an experimental college in Prescott, Arizona. Not and a big surf scene in Prescott, Arizona? Well, no. There was um, a wave pool in Phoenix, which I had surfed the year before. And I figured I could at least go surf there. If you want to then say how long without surfing in the ocean. Yeah. yeah at one point, I think I went almost three months. These days, uh, when you go, you know, a day or two, a few days without surfing, do you start to notice something like a chemical change in your body or just a change in your, mute, your mood or behavior? You know, it's funny how what you read in Surfer Magazine has to do with growing up. But I remember back way, way back when Jay Riddle, who used to surf Topanga in Malibu a lot, was asked a somewhat similar question, which was, you know, how often do you need to surf? And Riddle said, you need to go on, you need to go surfing at least twice a week to at least not lose it, which I took to mean, you know, your ability as a surfer, but also, you know, psychologically or, and or physically, just you know, your body just gets. You can't paddle as well, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I've always used that as sort of the the average that you want to maintain at least twice a week, which is no problem, you know, in the fall, winter surf season. But now as we get into sort of the spring doldrums, you know, there's there'll be weeks when you only go out once. And, you know, you try to make the most of it or whatever, or sort of make it the most challenging. But it, it you definitely do, you do decondition no matter what you try to do. I try to make up for it by surfing without a leash for over that four or five month period. So then you end up 
just you have to swim more you have to swim more you know what i mean <laughs> and, you, and it, it just it just makes it a little more challenging and also the other fun will be if there are the occasional big days as as there will be sometimes in <clears throat> you know mid late spring you know you pick instead of trying to pick the easiest way to paddle out pick the hardest way just for the challenge of it yeah do you stay pretty local or do you take trips i have a cabin up in point arena so i go up there pretty often and on big days and have sort of you know special sort of big wave spots up there that i that i serve how does the how do the priorities shake out because mavericks only break for example like mavericks breaks a handful of times a season oh no no it breaks all the time does it actually break all the time in a way that you can surf i, I surfed it last wednesday there was this group of friends uh and i all through the mid 90s into maybe like 2008 or so we had what were called the notch wars and the notch wars were to see how many times you could surf mavericks in, in a season so one of the years in 1998 grant washburn and i tied and this was the greatest number of notches ever i know that sounds like donald trump but we we had 86 notches for the season so that's that's a lot of days that's a lot yeah how many do you have an idea of how many you went out this past season i don't really know right now i'm going to guess it may be as little as 15 or 18 something like that so i've come to see a good day at ocean beach as a far rarer commodity any days that came that were even a b or b plus you know double triple overhead something like that i would pass on mavericks and surf here because I love Ocean Beach in a way that I've never loved, say, Mavericks. What do you love about Ocean Beach? It's kind of a rough spot. Is, I, that, is that what it is? I, yeah, yeah, the complexity of it. Right, okay. Yeah. And the wildness of it. I mean, any bozo can paddle out at Mavericks, really. You know, <laughs> seriously. Sometimes without getting your hair wet. But good luck some, on some days just getting to the 50-yard line at Ocean Beach. Mm-hmm. It's a much... You get in much better shape surfing Ocean Beach than surfing Mavericks. So about Mavericks, when did you first start surfing it and how did you hear about it? Jeff Clark, on a big day in 1990, we were contemplating paddling out at Ocean Beach. And Jeff said, come on you guys, let's let's go down to my place that I call Mavericks, you know? And, and I said, huh? So I ended up paddling out alone, I made it out. And uh, they went down and surfed Mavericks for the first time. Later in the year then, uh, my friend John Raymond from Sharp Park and I went down there. And I heard from Pee Wee about Mavericks in the 80s. And that there was a guy who, who had surfed it. And we would go down and check it out from the north side. You used to be able to drive your car all the way along those cliffs by Ross's Cove and all that. Mm-hmm. And so I remember with Pee Wee, we'd go down with binoculars and we'd look at the at this big, it looked like just a big peak. And all you could see was the left and the wave was over immediately. And we thought, eh. So with John Raymond, when we went down there and went around the backside of Pillar Point, which I had never walked around before, and we paddled out on a pretty good sized day and saw, this was in 1990. And when, once you get around to the south side and you're looking back up, at the peak at Mavericks, and you see that in a sense it's almost a point break. I mean, we were just shocked. 
and we each caught, I don't know, five waves that day or something. And, uh, oh, it was treacherous. And I remember us just at some point, this giant wave pushing us over all the rocks onto the flat reef, and we're just being rolled over the reef with our boards, and neither of us were hurt badly. And it just, it was about as much fun as you can have, in truth, because the whole thing was so unlikely, and we'd gotten mauled by some of the sets. So then after that, it was, we, it was on. That was it. You know, there was this trickle of people through 91, 92, 93, and then everything happened with, you know, the, that 12-day stretch in December 94 with Jay Moriarty and his famous wipeout, and then uh, Brett Sean Fu coming over here to surf with me out at Mavericks that day. And then from there, it's kind of taken this turn, this evolution, transition, and hasn't gone back, it seems like in terms of the competition and the emphasis on Mavericks as this, you know, premier big wave competitive surf destination. Well, you know, it was an interesting time because before 94, I think it was in 93 or 92, I was writing a column for Surfer Magazine in those days on surfers' health problems and uh, with, with some friends. And so I knew all the guys there on the staff and they sent me an article, which was a draft of the Maverick story called Cold Sweat. And I just, they just wanted to run it by me. And so I read the article and called up Jeff Clark and I said, Hey, Jeff, I'm looking at a draft of a, a piece that Surfer looks likely to run. Uh, and it's all about Mavericks. And they named the spot. I said, and also they, they took a somewhat unusual step for them, which is right up front, they described exactly where, where it is. Hmm. And, you know, in those days they used to sort of obscure. They'd say, somewhere in Northern California yeah. is this wave. And they wouldn't tell you how to get there or anything or what it was. And I said, so it seems to me if you didn't want that information of exactly where it is, you're probably the only person who could tell them not to include that. And I'll never forget Jeff's words. There was a pause and he said, well, I am going to open a surf shop. And that's when I knew, <laughs> basically, you know, it was just like Treasure of Sierra Madre. Right. It, it had some value. And Jeff could see it. I mean, he, Jeff's a real smart guy and could see the future. And that's really been the story ever since, of people fighting over it. Yeah, but trying to find it. It's kind of resisted it, though. Nobody yeah. seems to be able to figure it out. No, I don't know that. You don't think so? No. I'm, well, there have been just a lot of scummy people, you know, scamming it for the contest and then, you know, not paying the surfers who appeared or who won or, you know, jerking Jeff around and everyone around and, you know, getting tied up in lawsuits and then this whole thing about, you know, the women surfing and the, the rights to be in the contest or to have their own contest or to my view, it's always been sort of a tempest in a teapot because we just like to go and surf there. The, all this other hoopla is just a big distraction. And it's really, it's, it's not much fun going there on a big sunny weekend day. It's kind of a sad thing. All of us have for the most part, at least who aren't, you know, really have some commercial intent of sort of selling oneself. But you learn to walk with your head down and never meet eye with 
anybody walking the other way on the trail. You know, these tourists with their cameras and everything else, and you, you don't pause. You act like you don't hear them when they say, they, 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 they don't even say, excuse me. They just, they demand answers to their questions. And that has only gotten worse, is what I would say. Well, what kinds of stuff do they want to know? There is this mystique around Mavericks. Well, first they'll say, as you're in your wetsuit with carrying your board, they'll say, are you going surfing? Yeah. All right, that's question number one. And then, are you going to Mavericks? Is the contest on? Is it breaking? Oh, that's one of my favorite. Is it breaking? <laughs> I mean, you know, why do you think we're going out there? I mean, it's, oh, and the usual ones. Isn't it cold? What about the sharks? Oh, and then, and, and why is it so hard to see it? Yeah, there's something about it, though, that, like, has... Maybe it's just all of the commercial attention and all of the, the media, all that stuff that puts it on people's radar. Yeah, it's, it's surprising. It's, there's a strange mecca quality to it for some people, and they, they sort of come on this, this mission to see Mavericks. Did you... There was a... This was probably 10 or 12 years ago. There was a surfonomics report yeah. that came out about Mavericks that yeah. estimated it's worth at 30-something million dollars a year, I think. But it estimated that 420,000 people visited Mavericks a year. And that was, you know, over a decade ago. <laughs> yeah, I think it's kept up. I mean, the other thing that didn't help any was weather forecasters on all the local news ch channels. They used to really play up. There's a big swell coming. Mavericks mm. is going to be breaking. They'd have a little bit of footage of how it was, how big it was that day. The good days, even from 94 on, have been too contested to be as much fun. You must have been invited to participate in the contest. I was in the first year. Oh, you were? Uh-huh. But none of the subsequent ones? Just no interest? No, I, or? I, 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 I hated the contest. Oh. I actually did pretty well. I beat like half the people, which for me, I was, wasn't a pro surfer ever, and I never thought of myself as that great a surfer. But it was kind of, you know, my friend Kenny Bradshaw, he was way behind me. And, and you know, in the, the NorCal guys, I mean, Grant, all these people were way behind me. I didn't like it. I didn't like, I didn't like having been invited to be in the contest and how that immediately created a separation between the friends that I was surfing with who weren't invited. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like, it really, it's like the worst of being back in junior high school with this sort of, you know, you get to go to the party and they're not going to the party. I mean, what the hell? And so I didn't like that. And then I just, I just didn't like this being forced to catch a certain number of ways in a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, I, I felt kind of dirtied by it all. What is your philosophy on surfing or uh, surf ethics? I don't know on that. I think it's basically how, you know, how, to my view, it's, it's really how you, uh, how you look out for others and, uh, and look out for yourself and, you know, really learn self-sufficiency and uh, you know, how you live your own life and, and how it all ties into that. But you seem to have strong feelings about the etiquette around surfing. I do, in the sense of um, surfing, just like jazz, it's a lot about what came before. It's a lot about the history of surfing. It's a lot about the history of jazz. And in jazz, for instance, you, I think most musicians are judged by 
in truth, what they do with the standards, the, the pieces from, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Even. Mm-hmm. And that's how you sort of judge, I think, them as jazz musicians. And the same with surfing. It is a lot about the history. It's always been about the history of surfing. And it's... Uh, and the, the evolution, and then also the things that don't evolve. I mean, just the, the qualities, uh, the qualitative aspects of surfing. And it isn't about how many waves you catch. And it just never has been. So you've said that surfing has influenced you, has influenced your life and your life decisions, influenced you as a physician also. Yeah. How has it influenced you? I started my own sort of field of medicine in the late 80s I came to call medical advocacy but basically I don't treat patients with medications and what all or surgeries or but I do take on patients from around the country who have really complex life-threatening illnesses where the doctors have often given up on them or don't know what more to do or are actively obstructionistic of doing treatments or, or pursuing ideas that the patient or the family might want. So what I do is go to bat for them. It's pretty high stakes work. I, from the beginning, saw that work as being essentially the big wave equivalent of, of medicine. Hmm. Really, really having to be in sort of peak shape, really be on your toes and entering into sometimes pretty hairy critical situations and just you know by your own cunning and experience to have a sense of how to proceed with someone with you even who doesn't maybe have that experience or capability and essentially to be teaching them how to navigate or how to how to how to survive it sounds like there's this um inherent drive that you have to go pursue the bigger like the bigger waves <laughs> the more challenging surf what is that about you know surfing for, that's no i would I, you know i'd put it a little differently um for whatever reason most of my life i've been kind of a renegade or kind of an explorer you know i, I love exploration and adventuring i like going into the wilderness i love the unknown and um in surfing at least the big days approach that. The most exciting for me is exploring elsewhere in the world for new surf spots, especially big wave spots, and to sort of pull that off for all the, you know, research and time. It's almost like these cases I do, these medical cases, I mean, these are deep research cases to sort of figure out, if, if nothing else, just how to get to these places. I mean, the ultimate, the sublime is, you know, to find yourself 100 miles from any living person uh, sitting at the peak on some spot that's never been surfed before. And it's a really challenging big wave. That's got to be tougher and tougher these days, yeah? Not really, no. Is it because big wave surfing is still challenging enough or uncommon enough to keep it, you know, out of the grasp of a lot of the masses of other surfers? I think what happened was the uh, proliferation of organized surf tours and surf camps and uh, has made people think that that's about all that's possible. There's thousands and thousands of miles of unexplored coastline. I've been sort of doing this research and going to these places 
uh, again and again and again and doing explorations and you know at this point I'm, I'm up close to about 200 first surfs oh really yeah so we found spots how do you know the, <laughs> you know we're talking wilderness mm-hmm. I mean I you know in the and also surfers do talk if you're in the the game as it were you know mm-hmm. and so if you're looking for surf in these remote regions you know it takes it, it's so funny to think of how these people think well all you need is google earth you know and uh and somehow uh, this is this wild silicon valley propagated sort of dream you know that from just from your own sofa that you can sort of explore the world the hard part is to say okay now i'm going to spend my own money and i'm not going to sit there and somehow believe that this isn't uh, going to be possible unless i have a sponsor and these poor people say i need a sponsor you know so i can go isn't it nice though that those people who are on the couch looking at google maps doesn't that help put you at ease that those people won't be chasing down your you know, spots in uh, a given area because they feel a sense of certainty that there's nothing there to find? No, because truth be told, I, I don't want these places just for myself. I'd love it if more people would enjoy them. I'd love, you know, again, this coming from the perspective of being a physician dealing with people with life-threatening illness, you know, my obligation to honor them is to, if you're healthy enough and well enough, to really get out there and live and do these things. You know, last September, there was this reef I had my eyes on up in the Gulf of Alaska, and it was about 50 miles from land anywhere. But I'd, I'd seen the charts on this reef, and I knew, I knew for years it was another Mavericks. I kept trying to get out there, and it was really hard to get, get a boat, and it was too far to really fly, and this and that. So finally, a friend with a boat and we went out there this last September and it was just a really sunny windless day and normally that part of Alaska you get a lot of weather and that's often the reason you can't go out to places like this so finally we get out there and the reef is uh, doesn't really come out of the water but a couple little it's kind of like Cortez Bank setup where there's a couple rocks that come up out of the water at low tide but otherwise, most of it is, you know, eight, a fathom, eight feet deep, something like that. And um, pull up, see this set coming, looks about double overhead, glassy, pitches from the center of the peak, and we go, oh my God. And then we saw it looked like someone take off on the wave. And we go, what the fuck? And there's not a boat anywhere near. There's no, there's no. There's not another living person within 50 miles. And we watch as the surfer just makes the drop, pulls up sort of into the face, goes for 200 yards and pulls out. And as they pull out, you see going over the back, the fins. And it was just a stellar sea lion. <laughs> Probably a thousand pounds. And one of about 30 stellar sea lions out there. And these, this is their spot. Yeah. And we went out and surfed it. And then at some point they told us 
it's their spot and they chased us off the peak oh really oh it was hairball <laughs> but that's uh that's that's the mo that these places are out there and meant to be uh, i think i don't know explored to the extent that you're comfortable and you don't have to do it full tilt it can be in little ways but it's just waiting for people We cut our conversation there because Doc's family had just arrived home, and I, I didn't want to keep him any longer. So a big thank you to Doc for making the time to come on the podcast. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California Travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Or if you've got questions for me or suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, please throw us a rating and a review. Our music today is a track called Fuzzy and True by the Mini Vandals, and it comes courtesy of the YouTube Audio Library. See you next time.